This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Thank you for coming. I'm um, I'm very privileged to be uh, the moderator of a panel that consists of such uh, distinguished members of the Rand analytical team. Keith Crane, to my far right. Uh, has uh, written extensively on international economic affairs, but has also focused specifically on Iran. And um, his uh, most recent publication on that subject is Iran's Political, Demographic, and Economic Vulnerabilities. Um, To my immediate right is uh, Ali Nader, who is our uh, international affairs analyst and has recently um, contributed to Saudi-Iranian relations, uh, the rise of the Pasadran, uh, as well as imported oil and U.S. national security. And Fred Wary, who is an adjunct senior policy analyst, um, was the lead author of A Dangerous But Not Omnipotent, Exploring the Reach and Limitations of Iranian Power in the Middle East. I will ask uh, – uh, each of them to uh, to make a brief comment, and then we will uh, go to questions. Uh, but before I do, I simply want to note that uh, Iran is at the top of the U.S. foreign policy agenda, and for good reason. It does constitute one of the most serious threats uh, to stability in the Middle East and um, via that route, uh, the security uh, of the United States. If you look at uh, the issues we have between us, whether they be nuclear, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, energy security, Iran figures very prominently on on each of those. I would even venture to say uh, negotiations between uh, Israel uh, and the Palestinians. Uh, They're also about to hold a hotly contested election. And uh, so we thought it would be helpful to have this uh, briefing at this time to get some impact, uh, some insight into the impact uh, of the election on the economy, uh, domestic politics, uh, and uh, Iran's foreign policy. With no more ado, I will uh, turn to Keith Crane. Hi. I'm going to talk a little bit about the economic situation in Iran on the eve of the elections. Uh, First, I think it's important to note that Under Ahmadinejad, we have seen a very sharp spike in inflation, even though growth has been fairly rapid. And if you look at freely conducted elections around the world, I know of no instance where a government has been returned to power when you've seen a surge in inflation from kind of 10, 12 percent upwards to closer to 30. So this is a key issue, um, nothing that makes constituents more upset than inflation. It affects everybody, the old, the um, the young, the uh, the wealthy, the poor, uh, whereas issues like unemployment are often fairly targeted. So I see this as really a key kind of underlying thread underneath the, elect- the electoral campaign, which uh, will turn at least is um, very negative for Ahmadinejad. Uh, the other major economic issue for the election uh, has been a very sharp decline this year in terms of government budget revenues. Um, Iran, of course, benefited greatly from the run-up in oil prices in 2006, 7, and the first part of 8. Uh, this year, 
It it depends. The government depends on oil revenues for 70 and some years, 80 percent of revenues. So this year with oil prices down about half of what they were last year, so is the budget. And uh, the government has squandered, had put together a stabilization fund, but has squandered a lot of that money, uh, primarily in terms of providing subsidies to the population. So the budgetary pressures that are facing Iran um, not have uh, are going to be an important issue for whoever is elected president. What are the issues then for U.S. policy based on on these particular um, developments, the economic in the Ukrainian economy? I think um, you know, trying to turning to issues that affect con- that face Congress. Um, first, uh, U.S. sanctions have, have been an irritant um, for the Iranians. I think in some ways we've seen that they've been an effective irritant. I mean, some people you want to really irritate, and they have um, affected the Iranian leadership in terms of their ability to travel to Europe and also in terms of their own funds. Uh, they have had some effect as well in terms of the banking sector. Uh, Iran has had found it fairly difficult in some instances to work with international banks. It doesn't mean that the economy economy's still been growing pretty rapidly because of oil prices, but nonetheless, it has been more difficult to do business. Another sanction that's been fairly effective has been uh, that sanction that prohibits imports of technology that uh, have to do with gas liquefaction. Iran has the second largest natural gas reserves in the world. It does not export those because it has lacked technology in terms of gas the ability to liquefy that gas and send it abroad. Um, that said, um, I don't know of any country or very few countries that really take decisions in terms of what are their vital interests just based on economic sanctions. So although there's um, the Iranian government has made it clear that these bother them, that they would like to see them gone in terms of their ability to really change things in Iran, that is probably not or I would almost certainly not the case. Um, finally, um, some in the U.S. government have advocated putting sanctions on importing gasoline into Iran. Uh, this, to my mind, would be a totally counterproductive policy. Uh, the World Bank, the IMF, the Iranian Finance Ministry, the Central Bank under their former governor, time and time again tried to beat over the head of the Iranian government that these subsidies are uh, highly ineffective. They are poor use of resources. They are squandering Iran's oil wealth. And I pushed very hard for them to get rid of their subsidies on gasoline. And we have seen around the world governments that have eliminated subsidies on gasoline, the most recent being Iraq, where gas went up from a nickel a gallon to a buck a gallon without hardly any perturbation, you know, hardly any demonstrations in the in the economy with very um, sharp improvements in terms of both economic efficiency and actually helping the poor better. And so I think that focusing on what is a highly ineffective policy instrument for the Iranians by demanding, by putting embargo on it would actually help precipitate a change which would be useful for Iran and at the same time put all the, all the blame for that change on the United States government. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm going to highlight um, two fundamental tensions uh, that characterize Iranian foreign policy, regardless of, of who is in office. Uh, the first is a, a vacillation between extreme hyperconfidence about Iran's strategic position in the region uh, versus um, a sense of, of paranoia and a fear of, of encirclement. 
Uh, and the second is a tension between an ideological, normative-based foreign policy and a more pragmatic, realist one. Now, on the first tension, it's often said that Iran suffers from a sense of strategic schizophrenia. It can't decide if it has it really, really good or really, really bad in its regional environment. If we survey the regional landscape, uh, there's some justification for both interpretations. On the one hand, its longstanding adversaries on its western and eastern flanks have been removed, uh, the Taliban and Saddam. Its allies in the Levant, Hezbollah and Hamas, have enjoyed newfound acclaim in the Arab street, uh, due to their resistance uh, against Israel. Iran was effect- able to effectively sabotage the formation of a unified Sunni bloc playing on intra-Arab divisions that we saw in the round of dueling summitry after the Gaza crisis. But I think this sense of triumphalism is balanced by a profound sense of encirclement and paranoia. And as we point out in our study also, Iran's regional reach is bounded uh, by certain limits uh, in the region. Tehran remains worried about the Taliban resurgence in Afghanistan, the influx of narcotics from that country. They're also concerned about an unstable Pakistan. Iranian power has spurred a new diplomatic activism by Saudi Arabia, and this concerns uh, Tehran. Internally, Iran believes that the Iraq war has unleashed a whole uh, trend of ethnic activism in the Iranian provinces by dissident Arabs and Baluch. We saw this two weeks ago. Uh, in the bombing of a Shia mosque in Zahidan in the, uh, in the southeast province. In Iraq, uh, Iran has also suffered a number of setbacks. It had hoped for the victory of its allies in the provincial elections, uh, but it was disappointed in the results, and it was similarly dismayed uh, by the outcome of the U.S.-Iraqi SOFA negotiations. And then, of course, most recently, we saw that its allies in Lebanon, the Hezbollah, suffered a blow at the hands of the 14th March uh, movement. The second major paradox is this tension between ideology and pragmatism in the conduct of foreign policy. Both adherents of both trends agree on Iran's rightful primacy in the Middle East, that it should be elevated in its status. The key divergence is over how to get there, and in in particular the opportunity costs uh, of pursuing an excessively rhetorical foreign policy. And this is a key issue in the the presidential uh, debate. On the one hand are those principalists who espouse a very idealistic foreign policy based on commitment to Islamic values and the revolution. But even these principles have been forced to retreat to a more uh, pragmatic foreign policy because of limitations in Iranian capabilities and the realities of the regional environment. The more pragmatic uh, thinkers start out with the assumption that Iran can assert its rightful place in the region, but it can do this through diplomacy and a more realist uh, approach. There's growing recognition on both sides that the vocabulary and the tone of Iranian foreign policy matters. It creates friction with Iran's neighbors. It plays into the hands of hardliners on the other side, and it can result in dangerous miscalculations. Let me close by saying that Iranian foreign policy has long been used as a field of factional contention. It's very personalized. Elites will take a position on a a foreign policy issue, uh, not necessarily in the interest of the state, uh, but often with the sole purpose of sabotaging or outmaneuvering their rivals. And we certainly see this on the the nuclear issue and on the issue of engagement uh, with the United States. Thank you very much, Fred. Um, Our next uh, speaker will be um, Ali Nader. Uh, who will give us uh, some insights into the decision-making and political process within uh, Iran. Ali? Good afternoon. I'm 
basically going to briefly talk about uh, Iran's political system and decision making. And I think this is very relevant right now because of the presidential election next week. Uh, a lot of people are waiting for Ahmadinejad either to be defeated in the West or to be reelected. Of course, there are a lot of people waiting for his defeat in Iran. And uh, the major other candidate, the alternative, uh, Mousavi, has been uh, shown as being a relatively more moderate candidate, and in some ways he is. But what's important to realize about Iran is that the president has limited power to affect policy. And one of the reasons is because he's not the most powerful person in Iran, but also because the Iranian uh, system, political system, tends to be very dysfunctional and decentralized. And this is really due to Iran's hybrid system of government, where you have a theocracy that functions in parallel with a republican system of government. So within this theocracy, the supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, is the most powerful person constitutionally. But the republican system also has an executive and legislative and judicial branch. And so in some ways, Khamenei's powers are countered by all these other power centers. Within the system, the president is the second most powerful figure, according to the Constitution. He heads the executive branch. He uh, sets domestic policy, especially in the economy. He chairs the National Security Council, and he appoints all government ministers. And it's this duality within the system that creates a lot of the dysfunction in the system. And to top it off, the Iranian political system tends to be very informal. So decisions are really made behind the scenes and out of public view. And this really gives a lot of room for political factions to Iran to compete for power and determine state policy. And uh, political factions in Iran are not like Western political parties. They're not as strictly as organized, and they don't have wo voting constituents. They're rather organized around specific ideologies. Right now, we have very two broad groups of uh, factions in Iran, the Islamist left and the Islamist, Islamist right. And Ahmadinejad really belongs to the Islamist right. Um, this factional grouping believes that um, Iran should have a very uh, principalist or revolutionary system of government where the supreme leader has divine authority to rule over the masses from um, God directly, whereas the left which is represented by Mousavi, really believes in a looser or more democratic system of government. And there are other uh, policy differences between the two, for example, in the economy. The right tends to uh, favor free enterprise, whereas the left uh, has a more status view of foreign policy. Of course, Ahmadinejad has been a populist himself, and he hasn't really advocated foreign policy. Uh, or uh, free enterprise. So this goes to show you that the definitions of the factions are not as strict as uh, they look like sometimes. Um, on national security affairs, the two candidates basically agree on Iran's national security objectives, but they have very different approaches as to how Iran should achieve these objectives. For example, Mousavi has really criticized Ahmadinejad for being reckless and adventurous. Again, both candidates believe that Iran has uh, the same objectives. For example, in the nuclear program, it has a right to nu a nuclear uh, energy program. They'll never talk about weapons, of course. But Ahmadinejad is seen uh, by the political spectrum, especially on the left, as having pursued Iran's nuclear interests in a very reckless manner. Uh, even if Ahmadinejad loses and Mousavi becomes president, uh, I think there will be some wiggle room for Iran to make 
some compromises with the United States to engage the United States and the international community in the nuclear program. But ultimately in Iran, the Supreme Leader Khamenei and the Revolutionary Guards make uh, important decisions regarding national security especially. And also this applies to U.S.-Iranian relations. If Mousavi wins, there's a chance that uh, the U.S. can engage Iran because Mousavi has talked about detente and he's more of a moderate candidate. But again, if Khamenei doesn't want full engagement, that, then that's not going to really happen. I think we'll have a situation in Iran, regardless of who wins uh, the presidential election, where Iran will want to engage the U.S. on very limited issues on Afghanistan, for example, but it will try to avoid full engagement because of political, uh, the political situation in Iran. I think ultimately full engagement and normalized relations would weaken the stranglehold of the Islamist right on Iran, and relations with the U.S. would actually... Uh, pose an ideological threat to the Islamic Republic. Thanks. Thank you very much, Hans. Um, let me um, continue our discussion here by asking each of the panel members uh, a question that arises in regard to what they've been saying and the current situation. Uh, Keith, let me start with you. Um, you mentioned the, um, the multinational limitations on gasoline um, and the president has talked about giving, in effect, uh, uh, Iran till the end of the year Oops, to, see. to see if the, um, if the um, uh, negotiations or his efforts at negotiations or a dialogue with uh, Iran uh, will be uh, – uh, can show some progress. Uh, in the event that they don't, uh, Keith, um, given your view on the gasoline issue, are there other sanctions that might be more helpful or what is your view on the ability of the United States to go back to the UN or to go back to the Congress and, and seek uh, greater sanctions? Would they be uh, more effective? Um, I don't think you'd get acquiescence in the international community, but I mean the, the biggest hit that you, Iran would take is if there was an international embargo about buying Iranian oil. Um, you would see a very substantial increase. I mean, if no one bought oil from Iran, you'd see a very substantial increase in terms of the international price of oil, which is not something politically popular in most consuming countries of the world. But um, that w that in the, in over the course of a year would be quite devastating. Um, I'd be highly skeptical that you could enforce it. Other sanctions where you might get buy-in would be um, to tighten financial sanctions, which have a you know, an irritant quality to them actually does increase costs of transactions, um, um, potentially limitations in terms of, of, of technological imports, but we've done quite a bit of that already, but you could try to squeeze some of the particular types of machinery or whatever or target the program. Um, it doesn't hurt to announce even somewhat feeble sanctions if you want just to it makes a it makes a diplomatic statement um, let me just follow up one second the um, in the development of the uh, the Iranian gas fields um, the um, the Iranians have had a difficult time reaching any kind of an agreement with the international uh, companies would it be but evidently they could the international companies like Total and others could, Reach an agreement and and begin to uh, develop them. 
uh, is that a kind of a sanction that would that would make any sense? Um, so far as I understand it, the specific technologies own in terms of gas liquefaction as opposed to drilling and producing gas are held by just a handful of countries. And my understanding of what has happened is most of the efforts have been in terms of drilling and production. Um, but you could you could try to push back on that. Iran has actually been its own worst enemy there. They're just so difficult to deal with that company after company just said, forget this and left. So um, I don't know if providing sanctions might push the Iranians to become more amenable or just let them kind of continue to operate as they have. Thank you. Fred, uh, let me ask you uh, a question. Um, do you think from a foreign policy standpoint, do you think that and our efforts to negotiate an end to the to the nuclear program or to negotiate constraints on the program that reassure us that they won't become a weapons program. Do you think that's – first of all, do you think that's feasible? And, uh, and in doing so, can we do it in a manner which stops their nuclear program short of nuclear testing? Can we end up with a gray area? What's, what's your view on that? Uh, I think we can, but I think we should not underestimate the um, the, the tremendous domestic utility of the enrichment uh, cycle uh, inside Iran for certain political factions. The uh, the current regime has been very successful uh, in branding enrichment and branding the nuclear program as sort of an emblem uh, of Iranian sovereignty, and that makes it very difficult to step down uh, from this. It's often been said that Ahmadinejad is sort of playing the role of a nuclear Mossadegh. Um, he's using uh, he's using He's using. He's been using uh, uh, enrichment as sort of in the same way that Mossadegh used the nationalization of uh, of Iranian oil. Um, I think a key point to uh, to convey to Iran is the the opportunity costs uh, and the loss of regional prestige and influence um, that it can incur by by pursuing this capability. Um, there were voices under the under the Khatami era uh, that really pointed to the the pursuit of a nuclear weapon as jeopardizing. Uh, Iran's uh, regional relations with the Gulf that it had built up uh, under the good neighbor policy of, of Khatami. Why, if Iran seeks to, to bolster its clout in the region, uh, why would it pursue this capability that, that in the end has the effect of pushing um, these Gulf states uh, further under the umbrella of, of, um, of the great Satan? Uh, but again, I think, um, I think the enrichment cycle and, and the nuclear program in general has acquired this domestic momentum that may make it more insensitive uh, to external pressure uh, than we think. Let me just turn to Keith for a second. Is there an economic argument for these nuclear programs? People, people make economic arguments about anything. Look at corn ethanol. But um, if you look at <laughs> natural – if you look at uh, – take an objective view at the Iranian economy – uh, they have the world's second largest reserves of natural gas. Every country in the world is shifting to natural gas for electric power. You know, we've seen uh, Britain, Germany, United States. So, you know, it's considered the clean, efficient, uh, least costly form of electricity. So if you've got all these reserves sitting there and they flare 10% of the gas that they produce every year, just let it go up in the sky. It just is no economic rationale, for, as my view, for nuclear power. Thank you. Um, I, uh, let me ask you this. From listening to what you had to say about the two structures uh, of government um, in, uh, 
and with the with the um, uh, with the religious structure being um, paramount and, and uh, making the ultimate decisions, is this election going to make a difference? Does it matter who ends up being the president if the in the end uh, the Supreme Ayatollah uh, calls the tune? I think for domestic policies, it could make a big difference, actually, uh, because Ahmadinejad has tended to be very conservative when it comes to moral issues, for example, on the hijab or women's participation in politics and society. Musavi, if you have noticed, has been campaigning with his wife a lot, and this is the first time actually a presidential uh, a presidential candidate has campaigned with his wife. And she's actually right now engaged in a very charged debate with Ahmadinejad, who accused her of faking her um, educational credentials. I think when it comes to national security, not as much as we like to think it would or hope it could, because ultimately the president in Iran doesn't make uh, major national security decisions. It's the supreme leader, the revolutionary guards, and a few others, and uh, a few other power centers. Uh, I think if Musavi becomes president, the tone and style of foreign policy could change quite a bit, actually. So you won't have the harsh uh, rhetoric from Ahmadinejad, who's denied the Holocaust. And I think the tone and substance substance could change if well the substance could follow the tone so if you have iran talking about detente or the president talking about cooperation with the u.s i think that will allow um, an atmosphere where the u.s and iran can engage each other uh, much more easily thank you um fred let me uh, ask you one final question do the iranians understand what happens when they acquire a nuclear weapon? Do they understand what the strategic consequences would be to be a country with just one or two or three nuclear weapons and how that would affect crisis management of the various incidents that inevitably occur in the region? We actually know very, very little about that and there's there's little evidence to think to, to suggest that they've thought through the implications. Um, again, to go back to my earlier point, it appears to be so tied um, to prestige and to this domestic benefit um, that if they do in fact get it, they may be, um, they may be shocked at the consequences. Um, there could be a, an initial period of triumphalism, of saber-rattling, um, but then they may revert to, to realizing that this is an inflexible uh, tool. But again, it's, it's, it's driven by this need to sort of join, join the club. Um, Pakistan has a bomb. Why should Iran not have one? Um, this is a powerful, a powerful incentive um, added to those domestic constituents that I talked about. But again, in terms of looking at the open sources on uh, Iranian uh, writings, on deterrence, um, they may believe that simply having one is a sufficient um, deterrent. But we really just don't know that they've thought through the the full cycle, the full processes of of command and control. You know how how you use the safeguards um, and these sorts of things. Thank you, Fred. Well, let me uh, conclude with, a, I guess, a very brief summary, which says that the the election does matter. Uh, will it matter in curbing their nuclear uh, forces uh, or curbing their effort to develop nuclear forces? Uh, that's questionable. Uh, and um, there are no economic constraints uh, on uh, the um, uh, on the Iranians, which is like which are likely to coerce them. Uh, from that uh, from that task, but there are some areas such as Afghanistan where our interests cl- coincide, 
and where uh, and Iraq conceivably um, where uh, an improved relationship or some dialogue uh, could uh, put us on uh, could resound to our own our own benefit um, this concludes the recorded portion uh, of today's presentation I'd like to thank the panelists uh, for their insightful remarks this presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.